Yo, we here. It's the highway, not the highway crew, but it is the highway podcast. Thanks for joining us. It is myself and the Smee. Smee, what's up? Oh, nothing. I'm just drinking some warm whiskey out of a shooter, and it's it's rough. But is it? I'm, I'm paddling through it. Is it rough or is it perfect? <laughs> are those the same thing? Yeah, they are. Uh, no, I think that it's rough mainly because it's warm Baker's Mark out of a shooter, and it just kind of. Well, you can pass that right over to me if you'd like. I think I'll keep this one, and you can have this other unknown option here. Okay, you can I'll take, take that. something out of the fridge yeah. right there. That <laughs> yeah. yeah, we should also say we have been offered yeah. cold beverages. We do have access to beverages, but something within our just classiness makes us dedicated to this bag of the block bag of shooters we brought in. That I we think it, finish it. I think it's just a better story to tell if we like we're forced to drink hot shooters versus a cold. Pleasing beverage. Yes, fully stocked. Yes, beverage fridge. No. Yeah. No. All right, so let's get to it. Um, uh, we are off-site, and we have a guest, and this guest has been gracious enough to host us, as most of our guests do, because we are homeless. Well, I think I like to. Yeah, I like to think it's more of troubadours mm. than homeless bums that. Uh, nomads. Yeah, nomads. Yeah, that's more classy. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I'm excited for this guest. I think I had talked to you about it, mm, I don't know, a couple months ago. You maybe. talked to me about it several times. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then I think last week is when I actually reached out and you're yes. like, oh yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, because it came down to like, it's almost the end of season two. <laughs> and we've been trying to schedule it for, yeah, I don't know, six months. No, so well, truth be... You've been trying yeah. to schedule it. I don't think he has been trying to schedule it. Sure, okay. So <laughs> let me defend myself here. Full disclosure, Smee did ask me to schedule you probably about episode three. Yeah. And now we're at episode 23. <laughs> and I've got it done. Right? You had no timeline. That's on you. That's your problem. I had one goal and it was to schedule this one and I got it done. Barely. But anyway, excited. So I'm super uh, pumped that you're here. And honestly, I was a little shocked that you said yes. But then at the same time, I wasn't. Like what? Like, that's your personality to, like, yeah, F it, let's do it. Yeah, why not? <laughs> All right, there it is. So, without further ado, I'm going to introduce our guest, who I'm super pumped for. I think it's going to be a great conversation. You guys are going to enjoy it. Um, it is Stephanie Watson. Yeah, and and by welcome, I'm talking to my yeah, I'm talking to myself to your house. Um, But no, I appreciate you hosting us uh, because I I think Smee would agree that probably the biggest hurdle is always finding a place. Yeah, I think that when we were talking about this, I think that because a lot of our guests host us, and I was trying to figure out how to make it less awkward for them, but I don't know that us pulling up in their driveway with some kind of like travel Mm -hmm. podcast studio would be any less of a, uh, a burden to there. So we might as well just keep on coming on in. Yeah, just doing it. Sitting up camp in their house. Yeah. I think it's perfect. Yeah. Easy yeah. for me. I know. We don't have at, to do anything. This is, we are actually, we've actually moved the podcast to an actual bar where we belong the whole time on a bar stool. So. Yeah. 
This is actually the best setting. <laughs> yeah. Probably next to Don Shepard's where it was like a poker table. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, spot on. Right. So yeah. Feel free to use this space anytime. <laughs> She just wakes up in the morning. We're down here just drinking. Yeah, we drinking. just have an extracted retreat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, in her basement. So, yeah, it's super cool. I appreciate you uh, providing the space, and thanks for being on it. Um, we have had a defense attorney on it twice, mm -hmm. twice now, and had a few requests to do a prosecutor, but I also wanted to do a prosecutor because I think it's important to get both sides, if you will. Um, so if you want to uh, kind of introduce yourself to the listeners as much as you as much as you want to tell. Okay. Um, I've been a prosecutor for going on, I believe I'm at almost 17 years now. Um, my entire career as an attorney, uh, which is almost 19 years, has been in criminal law. I started out in the public defender's office. I don't know if you knew that or not. But my plan and my dream out of law school was to go do death penalty cases and save everybody's lives and be a criminal defense attorney uh, my whole life. So a year and a half as a public defender is all <laughs> I made it through. Dreams change. Yeah, Dreams it, change. they do change. It just went a little bit different direction. But um, I've been a prosecutor ever since. I've worked for a county as an assistant prosecutor. I was a municipal prosecutor. And um, now I work for a state agency as a prosecutor. So I didn't know um, you are a public defender. Is that right? Public defender, yeah, you said? So let's pack up our stuff and get the hell out of here. <laughs> I've had it with this shit. Uh, no, so I uh, actually I do think I knew that or uh, knew that at some point. I think we've talked about it. But so your specialty, I think you would agree, is uh, DWI, and I would say that you are the DWI attorney uh, in Missouri. So I don't know if you'd accept that title, but I think that you I are. I will gladly accept that title <laughs> for for many reasons, uh, because the position that you hold. I mean, you you know you uh, deal with a lot of. I guess I'll can I say special cases. They are special. Okay. They can be special. <laughs> okay. So let me ask you, what moved you, uh, or why did you go the direction of DWI? Because I feel like most prosecutors kind of move away from that like the new folks get that and then as they get experience they move away from it so sure. why why did you do that so well when i started out as an assistant prosecutor in randolph county there's only two of us so it's me and the elected so i was given dwis and other cases just kind of by default uh, but i found as i was learning how to be a prosecutor my dwis were uh, the cases that were challenged the most i had the most hearings on them um, they became the most interesting to me um, and I had a period of time, which I don't like talking about, but I lost three jury trials in a row and I hated it. And I think some people might take that and decide they don't want to do any of the guys ever again and go a different direction. But I went the other way and I said, I'm going to figure out how to try these cases and how to win these cases. And I found that I really, really enjoyed it. It's, it's challenging. Um, it's very unique. And... You, know, you mentioned that's what a lot of new prosecutors get. I hate that we do that. A lot of mm -hmm. prosecutors often do that. I think it's a terrible way to do things, but it's what we've always done, so we keep doing it. Um, I do think prosecutors should learn on other cases before you graduate to DWI, because DWI, it's hard. Yeah, that was gonna be my question. If it was such, if it was the one that got challenged and went to trial the most, why was that? Where everybody was cutting their teeth? Was that part of that? It was just you, they knew that they were, that would really cut their teeth. I. I just, them away. Well, I think, you know, historically, you know, it's traffic cases that new prosecutors get. 
and DWI for a long time was thought of nothing more than other than just traffic cases. They weren't mm -hmm. really taken seriously. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, so that was just kind of the, here are the easy things that you can do to learn how to be a prosecutor. And people, it takes a while to catch up to the fact that, you know what, actually, this probably isn't the best way to do it because you bring on these brand new prosecutors and put them up against these defense attorneys that all they do is DWI. Like some of them, yeah. yeah, they're specialists and they've been doing it for years and years and you expect it to be even and mm -hmm. it's, it's not, so. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I think kudos um, to you for moving towards the challenge versus taking the easy way out, if you will, and going away from it, right? So losing the three jury trials, that pissed me off. Um, and I do think uh, what you said is a lot of people go, well, hell, I've lost some, so they just go a different direction. So I think that says something for your who you are as a person to move towards the challenge versus away from it. I will say, though, too, I have to give a lot of credit to my elected prosecutor at the time. Uh, he had a very tough stance on DWIs. He said, we don't amend these, we don't dismiss them unless there's actually a reason. Uh, so whatever the charge is, if it's a felony, you keep it at a felony. And so that's just kind of what I did. And you do try more cases that way if you're not willing to negotiate as much. So I just, I had to do it. And I appreciate now that he did that. Sure. Uh, because that's what gave me the experience to, to get to where I am, basically. So I love that too, because where you started is pretty rural. Yes. Right. And I'll just say from my experience, because I've worked in some metro areas and rural areas, uh, unfortunately, I feel that a lot of times um, they are pled or, or something they change. I shouldn't say change the, well, yeah, change the charge or, or offer some sort of deal. So I think that's pretty rare that your elect decided to, hey, we're going to make a stance and keep it at what it is. Um, so I guess on that, why do you, what's your opinion on why maybe some uh, jurisdictions decide to take plea deals or, um, you know, not stick with the original charge? Well, as far as plea deals, I would say probably... 95% or more cases are resolved that way because there's just logistically you cannot take every case to trial. Right. There's no way you could get that many cases done, that many witnesses coordinated. So that's just, that's what makes the criminal justice system run is the plea deals. And it's plea deals don't, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, what you're doing is trying to find a fair offer and a fair resolution for that particular case based on the facts of that case and the person's priors. Um, so I do think a lot of times people look at the term plea deal and, and think it's negative. That's not necessarily negative. Um, as far as amending cases down that don't need to be amended, you know, I find it uh, disappointing when DWIs are amended down to something like a defective equipment. Um, yeah. I don't think they should go that far, far down. Uh, but, you know, sometimes there are reasons cases are amended. Maybe that the case just isn't a good case, or maybe it's just that that office has other cases they have to focus their resources on. Um, so it's hard to say because we have, what, 115 prosecutor's offices in the state, um, and they all have different resources and challenges and abilities. So why any one prosecutor does something, you know, I can't say. But... Right. Okay. So this is just a weird um, civilian question. Uh -huh. Oh, geez. Uh, yeah, sorry, it's me. I'm a civilian. And so you were talking about plea deals. And so it's a civilian kind of like corporate America question. So, you know, a lot of, of that world runs on metrics and stuff. Is there, do they have like a threshold? We're only allowed to plea so many down or this is kind of our expectation or is it truly 
a case by case or a year by year situation depending on what the cases are. Do they track that? I don't know if they even track that information. I'm like, oh, hey, we have this many that pled out versus this many that went to trial or if that's even a thing. So that would be up to each individual prosecutor's office and I'd like the prosecutor to decide how they track those things. Yes, there's a case management system that they can set up parameters and they can track what's yeah. going on in their county in that way. Uh, statewide, yeah. I don't know that we have something like that. I know there are DWI statistics mm -hmm. as far as um, arrests and then how many convictions come out of those, but I don't know how detailed the statewide database is on that. <laughs> but no, it is up to each individual prosecutor. prosecutor's office to decide you know, how they're going to handle their caseload. Okay, yeah, I just I had no idea how that worked. Yeah, and I want to hit kind of uh, or hit something on what you said. So plea deals, I hope that didn't come across like negative because I'm okay with a plea deal. Um, I know a lot of guys are like, oh, I can't believe they pled down to this. Listen, that's not my as a as a law enforcement officer. It's not my business, if you will. I provide you uh, with the report and everything that happened and what happens after that. I think is um, not necessarily my concern. I mean, don't get me wrong. I want it to you know uh, not be dismissed or anything. But I think sometimes we as cops go, well, a plea deal is a loss. And, you know, I kind of like what you said, it's not necessarily a loss. You're just, you know, offering them something different. And I would say probably most of the time that it does still involve a conviction of some sort of alcohol related driving offense. Would you agree with that or what's your experience on on that? Uh, I guess I can't say what other prosecutors are doing for right. sure, but... I mean, any even if you do amend something down from a felony to a misdemeanor, or maybe just one level down of whatever the charge is at, yeah, that still goes on their record and still can be used against them if they get another DWI because it would enhance their sentencing. So it's not always a negative thing. Sometimes it's a way to resolve a case um, that might have some issues. And, you know, like, I know you didn't mean anything negative about the plea deal thing, but that's just the way... You know cases are handled mm -hmm. and i would think if there's you know one place there is a huge disconnect is between law enforcement and prosecutors yeah just talking about that you know if you're a law enforcement officer and some of your cases if you keep seeing them get amended or dismissed instead of just getting mad about it you know why not just contact your prosecutor um and just say hey can we set up a time to talk and say is there something i can do better or sure. can you explain to me why i did this on this case um, and often, sometimes it might not have anything to do with what the officer did. It could be this person, this defendant's particular circumstances. Um, maybe they're doing something or have a background that you don't know about, and that prosecutor's just trying to give them a fair plea deal, mm -hmm. uh, and you just don't know what those circumstances were. Yeah. yeah I like that, too, because I think as coppers, sometimes we have a bad uh, habit of blaming everybody else, like, oh, it's the prosecutor's problem. Well, sometimes I think we've got to take ownership with the uh uh, how do I say this? Shitty reports or shitty cases that we send y'all to. Very well said. Yeah, very, uh, very politically correct. Mm -hmm. No, but it's true. I mean, you know, sometimes we sh we send them a steaming pile of crap, and then we're like, I can't believe they didn't do something with this. Well, maybe the problems at our level, and not necessarily the prosecutor's level, but you know, a lot of times we point the finger. So I think first we start with ownership of what could could we have done better, and then I think the next step is what you said is we reach out, make contact with a prosecutor and say, hey, what what could I have done or what could I have done to make you do X, Y, and Z? You know, or, or like you said, maybe there's a whole other circumstance we don't even know about. So I just think we, and I'll, again, I'll point the finger at ourselves, I think we do a really bad job of that, of pointing the finger. 
Well, and it's not a natural, just not a natural feedback loop. So unless you take the time to go and talk to your prosecutor or whatever, then you're not going to know the why or anything based off of it. Mm-hmm. And I will say, I can specifically remember some of the officers back when I was in Randolph County that did take the time to make an appointment with me and talk with me about things. And not only did that help me understand what they were doing and maybe some things that I had concerns about, uh, but it also made me feel better going forward about their cases because now I get to know, I'm getting to know this person and I understand why they did what they did. And so now maybe if I see an issue in the future, something I think is an issue, I'm more likely to reach out to them first and be like, hey, this is what I see. Can you tell me about this? Um, and, you know, go through it that way instead of just, I don't know, going through the motions and processing that case like I normally would. You build trust with your officers and what they're doing and saying, um, just by, you know, having those meetings with them. So it really does make a difference. And I will say on my part too, I did a terrible job of that my first couple of years as a prosecutor because I was so busy trying to figure out how to try a case. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to admit evidence. I didn't know what questions to ask. My assumption is that every single law enforcement officer out there, you know, they knew what they were doing. They testified a million times. Yeah. They were comfortable in court and it was, <laughs> they were totally fine. And I'm the one trying to figure this out. Yeah. So it was on my part too. Like I didn't realize I should actually be talking to these people and then my cases are going to go a whole lot better. So I take responsibility in that too, but it did take some of those officers reaching out to me first, like, Hey, let's talk. And then I'm like, Oh, okay. Now it's clicking for me too, that we have to do this together. It can't be just different pieces and we never, you know, come together and and talk about these things. So gosh, what a, what a, like a twist. So, so from our, standpoint or from our view is, well, the prosecutor knows what they're doing because they've been to law school. They know all these things. When in reality, I think we're both just, we have these such high expectations of the other person uh, and we don't communicate enough to know that, you know, maybe we do need to be talking to, or I shouldn't say maybe we do need to be talking to each other, but we just have these high expectations. Um, You know, because when we go into court, we expect the prosecutor knows all this stuff about DWI. And from my understanding, in law school, you get goose eggs, absolutely nothing on DWI uh, criminal law, right? You get criminal law as far as case law and kind of theory. Right. Uh, But for the most part, 95% of law school is not learning how to try a case, how to do anything in the courtroom. You might have a class or two on that. But no, you walk out of there and you have no idea what to do in the real world when you actually have to go into a courtroom. They're working some of their own stuff, okay, on their end. And you guys are very much out of my report over here. Yeah, no, believe (laughs) me, I'm not pointing the finger here, but I just think there's a big misconception that we expect a prosecutor to know, okay, HGN, there are six possible clues, four is what we're looking for, walk and turn. You know, we expect all these things. In, in reality, they don't even know what a PBT is or, uh, you know, whatever breath instrument you use. So Intox DMT is what we use here in Missouri or the AS4. But, you know, we're going, well, why aren't they challenging it? Hell, they may not even know what that freaking is. And I just think that's the really big disconnect between PAs and, and cops. I mean, I've probably tried at least five DWI cases before I had even a good understanding of what HGN is. And see, that's crazy. <laughs> Because how can I expect you to ask me questions if you don't know what it is? And again, I'm going to point the finger at myself. Why am I not reaching out and saying, hey, here's what HGN is and here's what I'm looking for? Uh, Now, there is a county here in Missouri that uh, does a really good job with this. In fact, I go down there once a year 
and train all their new prosecutors on DWI. So we take a PBT, we take an AS4, I run them through field sobriety, and then also the DRE program. So kudos to them. But that's one out of 114 counties. Um, so yeah, that's just crazy that there's just this huge mis mis misconception on each other's part. And then on y'all's part too, because I think of this law enforcement, we do a as a whole, mm -hmm. right? Unless your specialty is DWI, we do a we do a, a poor job of investigating that or administ administering the test even properly, which is a whole nother yeah. topic yeah, here. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that too, just from age and the conversation, I, I don't, besides you and where you're at at this, at this moment, there's not really like, like DWI prosecuting attorneys. They take all criminal law probably, right? Like each county. Absolutely. Yeah. So they're special, they're not, there's not a lot of specialized in DWI prosecuting attorneys. No, and some of the bigger prosecutors' offices, there are some yeah. prosecutors that do most of the DWIs, and and there are some really good DWI prosecutors around the state. But for the most part, just because of the sheer number of cases prosecutors' offices get, and mm -hmm. the limited number of prosecutors actually in that office, not a lot of prosecutors um, can just specialize in that mm -hmm. because yeah, they have, have to do so many different. You have types to be like a jack of all trades. So Absolutely. Even just even the assumption that they should know that is, is probably an overstatement because in, unless they're in those larger areas where they're in a role that specializes in it, they're going to be trying to also specialize in all the other types of criminal law that are out there. And so that's just a lot of information for one individual to be involved in. Yeah. And I'm going to give Stephanie credit because she knows a lot more and just kind of give some of your background just from what I know. So since I've been in my training position, I mean, you've actually participated in wet labs ooh, several times. Several times. Right. Yeah. And do I dare say as a, as a drinker? I nicely volunteer my time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was the full experience. Yeah. No, but she, um, she does. And I think that's that. there's something to be said about that because she can say, oh, okay, at an 09, I know that I'm and not in good shape, right? Or um, I feel this at a .06 or whatever it is. And then experience what the officers get to, uh, or how, I'm sorry, how they administer the test and then what they're looking for. And of course, that's newer guys. So, um, you know, at that point, they don't have a lot of experience. But, um, you know, you're one of thousands. And um, I just think it's unfortunate that we have that that huge disconnect between us and, and our PAs. So anyway, okay, I want to move on to something. Here's a Here's a really big question for you all right okay in fact it's such a big question all right so me apparently you have a question before i ask my big hard-hitting question well, this was nothing yeah this was absolutely nothing about the topic no we'll, we'll get off agenda it's no big deal i'm just trying to keep us on track it's no big deal so okay, whatever well, you want anyway i'm gonna do that so i i just wanted to know like because you had originally said that you're whenever you got into um to law you wanted to get everybody off the death row and i wanted to know like why well, that's a good question. Okay. I do think I was inspired by the book. It's fiction, but it was a John Grisham book, The Chamber. I don't know if either of you have read it. It is about mm. the death penalty. It's I was just fascinated by that book, and that book made me want to learn more about it. And I just wanted to save lives, and I don't know why that's the route I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. But um, I was just fascinated by it. And when I was in law school, it was actually the Missouri Public Defender's came to like a career thing and, and did a talk about it and it was people that did that work for a living and I was like that is exactly what I want to do and I'm going to do that and that's my goal so okay 
but no, I think it, I think it's it has changed. It is evolved. It, it is evolved. There, <laughs> evolved. Yeah. It's evolved. I just think it's very interesting because I think law, like going into law, is interesting. And I we talked previously with Denise about like she liked the puzzle aspect of it, and that was her reason why she got into it. And I was like, oh, I also. I could see myself doing that, except for I wanted to do the sketchy, undercover, like, PI type of stuff, where I find myself in some weird situations. So you're a creep? Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> With a camera. Whoa. That was, yeah, so I would tend to go more that way. Always been fascinated with criminal law. Like, in law school, the criminal law classes I took were my favorite, and I loved them. I didn't care for a lot of other classes, so it was just very, very clear to me that this is the area I wanted to be in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was with the public defender's office, I got really good experience there as far as courtroom stuff, because that's mm -hmm. all you do is courtroom stuff. And I worked with some really, really great attorneys. There are some great, great public defenders out there. They are some of the best criminal defense attorneys. Um, and I liked it. But the thing that I found as I worked for the public defender's office was it was I was thinking going into it, you know, I'm going to find all these legal reasons why this case should be dismissed or these cops did something really bad and I'm going to catch them and I'm going to expose them in court. And it turned out that most of the time that's not what was happening. It was most of these clients said, yes, they freely would admit it, but said, give me the best deal. And so I felt like I was mostly doing kind of social work, mm -hmm. like getting them into uh, rehab. Oh, you know, a lot, of the, yeah. a lot of my clients had substance abuse or mental health issues. And so that's kind of what it was. And it wasn't the legal work I was expecting it was going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was just, my, I was very naive coming out of law school as to what criminal law was and what was happening there. And it just was not what I was expecting. So mm -hmm. it just didn't seem like as much legal work as mm -hmm. what I wanted. And I was just in court one day with a prosecutor and uh, we were talking about a case and it was a case I had against him. And he was I think was trying to bluff me about something that was going to happen in this case. And I was like, you can't do that. Like, that's no way that's going to happen. And he's like, yeah, it is. And he's like, come work for me and I'll show you how I do this. And I was like, whatever, like you're messing with me or whatever. Two days later, I was in his office and I was working. In his office. So <laughs> it literally happened that quickly. Wow. What a recruiting tool. I know. Yeah. Yo, <laughs> just come work for me. It's easy. I like that. Yeah. Good yeah. questions, me. Well, I just, I don't know. That's what interests me is the why. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, public defenders. I think they've got it uh, rough, tough. Yes, it can be very tough. Rough and tough. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Have you guys seen the new show called Night Court? No. The new show is it? Is it new? I, I just saw it the other day. I don't know. Like Night Court, the remake it's, of the original. Yeah, there's a remake out there. Yes. It's God. You have seen it? Well, I haven't. I knew it was out there. Yeah. yeah. I just saw some snips. And I, just court at night. It's just a sitcom about night court. Oh. Again, I don't know what night court's actually like because I've never been. I can guarantee you the but, real thing's better than but, yeah, sitcom. Yeah. I've like, never been to night court either, but you did realize there was an older show. No, I didn't. Oh, my. No, I did not. Oh my gosh. Well, All right. We're like dating her. Old, We're dating her. You know, see, <laughs> I, yeah, I, um, yeah, there's a remake out there, and the the snippet, but was it also the original? It was like a sitcom. Yeah, and I was like, okay, yeah, like I said, I know I've never been to Night Court, but I can imagine it's chaotic and the show about it. It's I not think real, but we should but. just set up a camera in there. The public would just lose their mind. I think, like, if the general public knew 
what actually happens, I think they would just lose their mind. I think the like, oh public God. has no idea yeah. what happens in courtrooms. No yeah. idea. No. I feel like the night court, though, would be very, like, would be very reminiscent of, like, any our waiting room at night, though. So. I think probably the most disappointing thing for the general public would be to go sit during a docket and realize how many cases are discontinued. Oh. It's more how much doesn't happen than what actually mm -hmm. happens. Yeah. Uh, because it's, that's the majority of cases. It's continued for one reason or the other. Uh, so... It's funny you say that. I've got a case that was supposed to go Monday. It has been continued for the ninth time. And I can tell you that it's supposed to be in February. It will be continued again because I'm not available. So we're going 10 times on, a, I think it's a misdemeanor DWI case. Yeah. And I would just say like the amount of time and resources wasted mm -hmm. is just mind boggling when you get into a courtroom. I mean, so I'm, I'm involved in it and it's still like difficult for me to process. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Anyway. No, I mean, I just, since I started working more closely with law, the, the law enforcement industry and just really paying attention to how many times your cases get continued, I, I would say from a corporate America standpoint, it is incredibly inefficient. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite thing is when the judge is like, no, this has been continued so many times. We're doing it today. I'm like, thank yes. God. Yes. And some judges are way better than others about yeah. it. There are some that have time standards that are in front of them and they say, no, we are doing it now. Yep. Like with it, unless there's really, really, really good reason, yeah. we are not continuing again. And I appreciate that very much because I agree. Unless there is an actual legitimate reason we can't do this today. Mm -hmm. If we're all here and if we have witnesses yeah. here, let's put the witnesses on the stand. Let's go yeah. for it. I think that's my big thing. So I'll just, you know, talk about the one I have uh, tomorrow. It's a two and a half hour drive. So listen, if I'm driving two and a half hours, let's just do this, right? I'm here. Everybody's here. Uh, obviously, we're arguing in front of them already. Let's just move forward with this, right? So it, that's what's frustrating for me. I mean, and I get it. Like, I don't get upset about it. That's just my role in the in the whole process. But at the I same time. I can imagine it would be frustrating on your end, too, because you're prepared to go to court. Yeah, and you're like, oh, it's just like getting rammed up. Yep, you have to prepare every single time. You, yeah. have to keep, you have to go back over it again yeah. and say, okay, what am I doing here? What's this case? Yeah. And, you know, re-familiarize yourself with everything. Yeah. You do it just one time and have the hearing and be done. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, a lot, easier. Easier. a lot of buildup for not a lot of... Yes. I don't want to say climax, but yeah. I did. <laughs> she said climax. <laughs> well, what's wrong with the word climax? I don't know, but it's me. the only to me. Okay. I will say the one that's been continued nine times, I I could not read the report anymore. Like I could recite the report at this point. So that's probably the Do positive it. thing. <laughs> Just <laughs> give all the facts of the case right now. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, but um, yeah, good, good questions, mate. Good conversation. Usually you don't contribute much, but you know what? Good for you. Thank you. Hey, new fine. year, new you. Exactly. New year, new you. Mm -hmm. All right. Here's a question. Big one. Is this the big yeah, one? Yeah, I was like, I can't imagine. A long time ago. more pivotal than my night court question. Big whatever. one. We got a big one coming up, folks. All right. So it's two prong, two part question. Right. From your experience, again, which is right now is like DWI specific, what do you see cops do wrong the most? And then the second half is what do they do right? the most no pressure or just all listing i can only pick one for both um you know i think you can Maybe do hey there's no rules you can do whatever you want 
Hey, we're in your house. Yeah, actually, yeah, you make your house. <laughs> yeah, you can do whatever you want. We're in your house. You're the guest. Well, when you say, what do they do wrong, are you talking about during the actual investigation part or the report writing part or in the courtroom? Okay. Because she should be a lawyer. She's great. Good. I can go in, in a few different directions. So, great question because I do later on have a report writing and a testimony part. So, okay. let's go with the investigation part of it. So from your experience in, in your cases, which again, I think are high profile cases, more complex cases than most, um, what's one of the things you're going, okay, this is what I'm seeing wrong over and over and over again. Well, now you changed it because now you said in the, the complex cases, that's a totally different thing. Are we well, talking about just a regular DWI? I mean, I would consider almost all, because again, you're in a specialty position. Like You typically don't just take a run-of-the-mill DWI, do you? So most of the cases I do are fatality or serious injury crash cases, but I do sometimes do uh, just a DWI without a crash of some sort. So okay. I do both. Okay. But I... When I think of a complex, serious DWI case, I'm thinking the fatality case. So, so that's what I was way thinking. Way different ball game versus yeah, a just a DWI. So I was thinking fatality too. So okay, let's let's stick to some more of the basics here. So on a on a regular DWI, when I say regular, so we're not talking, you know, any sort of crash or any sort of fatality. So we're talking, driver gets pulled over, investigation, arrest, and leads to a, a court case. What's one of the things you see officers do wrong? The most well i think probably what's done wrong the most if we're talking about field sobriety tests would be hgn by far okay i think the timing is oftentimes done incorrectly and now that more of us have body cams and we can see this done on dash cams you can just watch it yourself and see that it's done incorrectly so just administering the field sobriety test correctly in the first place i think is definitely a huge one um, I think the other thing is probably just taking shortcuts and not doing a full investigation. Because the thing that's kind of, well, that is unique about DWI is you're arresting someone based on your, you know, opinion, your mm -hmm. determination that they're impaired. And you might see someone and you know immediately that they're impaired. So in your head, you're like, I've got this, like mm -hmm. this person, this person is totally drunk. And if you came to me and said you arrested someone and you knew they were impaired. As a prosecutor, I know you and I know how you work, so I would trust that. But the problem is, is I have to show a jury or a judge mm -hmm. that you did enough of an investigation to make that determination. And there can be a disconnect there sometimes because you might in your head think, oh my gosh, this guy's hammered. Like I'm just gonna arrest him, we're gonna go. But a judge or a jury might be expecting more out of you. You know, for example, if uh, more due diligence than what we need to act. Yeah, like if you, let's say you can't do walk and turn in one leg stand for some reason. Um, and what I see a lot of times is if they can't do that, let's say they have an injury or their, their balance is very terrible, whatever is happening, then why don't you do some of the other things? Why don't you do alphabet and counting, the stuff that should be very simple and very quick mm -hmm. and very easy for any officer to run someone through those <laughs> tests so you can document that you did an additional investigation you don't personally need that because you you know but if you don't do that stuff it looks like you're either just either being lazy or just yeah taking a shortcut and not doing it. like why don't you take the extra steps to complete the investigation why do we only do part way and, and find a reason to stop and then just stop mm -hmm. so i think that's pretty consistent with what our defense attorney says is that um 
yeah, we don't do a full or complete investigation. And, you know, as an officer myself, I think that uh, oftentimes is because we're lazy. Uh, and I said it, right? So it's okay. It's okay to talk about that. But um, I think that's where we regret things later on is when we're sitting in a courtroom or getting up on the stand or we're already sitting on the stand and we're going, damn, I probably should have spent a little more time doing this investigation, right? And earlier on in my career, I went, probably could have done this one a little bit better. Um, but I think that's something we need to, you know, that we mature over time. And um, hopefully we're uh, doing better investigations and able to explain even what we did better than before, if that makes sense. So if you're doing like only HGN, I think, um, and, you know, you kind of hit on HGN. A lot of cops cannot number one, administer it correctly. And then number two, definitely can't talk about Absolutely. Uh, what HGN means and why it's even relevant. Would you agree with that? Or Absolutely. And then if you have, like I was talking about when I was uh, a baby prosecutor, I didn't know what HGN was either. So if we have an officer in the stand who can't explain what they're doing and a prosecutor who doesn't know enough to ask the right questions to walk you through it, there is zero chance that the jury or the judge is going to understand it or have any idea how important or reliable this test actually is. So we all have to have a good enough understanding of it to relate that to a jury. I, I think if you just do HGN as far as when we're trying to prove impairment on an alcohol case, like that's fine. That's enough. Uh, for you know, my purposes to know, I know you would know at that mm -hmm. point if that person was impaired, but that might not necessarily be enough to a jury, especially when we can't even explain what that means. Um, they're not going to go with us and, and convict that person. Yeah, that was actually one of the questions that I wrote down in terms of the jury. What is the, from a DWI's perspective, what is the kind of um, the piece of evidence that they usually find the most Mm, I don't want to say damning, but that's going to be the word I say. But what usually is the jury usually the most swayed by in terms the breath of the blood test? Absolutely, yeah, a thousand percent. The number they the want number. the number. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's black and white essentially yes. at that point. That's and that's I mean it's the jury, so it's a and I even this would be I would even be more qualified than a jury in this because I have seen fields and participated in fields and done a lot of help with the training of fields and so. But yeah, just to the common layman, when you talk, you can talk about my eyeballs bouncing back and forth. Common people just don't think about the ability or how that works. Really. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you have video, you know, if you have someone that's falling down drunk, yeah, that would be easy for a jury. But those aren't the cases that go to trial. Right. Oftentimes the cases that go to trial, they might not look all that drunk on video or there may be just a few things they are like, oh, it's kind of iffy. I don't know. So for sure. Yeah, a lot of times they do want that number because that would be hard just from a jury perspective to explain away some of those fields or to explain just the science behind some of those fields and what you should and should not be seeing in the course of that that case just alone. And I think HGN is is the most difficult to explain because you can't see it for the most part. Like walk and turn, it's like okay, yeah, I get it, right? They did this, they did that. Most of the time, other than, you know, miss heel to toe and raise or use arms for balance, it, it, that may not be on camera, but usually everything else is on there. Right. But HGN, you know, obviously the most reliable one is not. And I think that's where we struggle is just explaining, number one, how to do it properly. And number two, what it means. Um, so I got kind of got a, I got a follow up question is, so does it kind of matter um, as far as experience? 
So let's say, uh, you know, you have a brand new person that does HGN, um, you know, doesn't have, uh, let's say the person's like, oh, I had a knee injury back in 1983 playing high school football. So they don't do walk and turn and one leg stand. Like, do you see a pretty significant difference in that new person versus, um, maybe I should word the question differently. Are you more um, confident in like the experienced person that has done this several times with a new person? Like, are you okay with that if the new person does it versus the experienced person? Or does that, does that kind of make sense? It does. It's kind of hard to answer though, because the new, new people straight out of the academy, they usually still remember the field sobriety tests. And sometimes I would much rather have them on the stand than someone that's been out for 10 years that yeah, baby. does field sobriety tests. That's my boys. Yeah, boy. <laughs> so yeah, when you're coming out of it and you've been training on that yeah. and studying it for a while, the new, new people, a lot of times they are very fresh. Solid. And I will say sometimes when I'm in the, the trainings with you and I'm asking them questions, they are answering them and they are getting them correct. And then when I do trainings traveling around the state with officers that have been in a variety of years of experience, a lot of them have a hard time answering some of the basic questions. Yeah. So, no, I'm not afraid of a new person at all. Love Sometimes that. I think, if you know what you're doing, then let's put you on the stand and we'll talk about it. <laughs> mm. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So my new boys listening, keep at it, boys. So you have so, to keep at it. Yeah, that's, that's the, the key. Thing. Yeah. You have yeah. to keep studying and refreshing your memory and administering the tests and talking about it and learning. Otherwise, it goes away. Yeah. And I, so going back to kind of what you said, you know, your experience was, you know, you lost three jury trials and then you, you, you accepted that challenge and moved forward. So from law enforcement's kind of point of view, I mean, my first couple of DWIs, I'm like, man, F this. This is dumb. This this investigation takes forever. Uh, field sobriety tests suck. I got to do a breath test. I mean, you know, you're two hours into a DWI plus the report, right? Plus going to court. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, it is important that we keep doing that. And just because you, I guess I'll say, quote unquote, lose a case doesn't mean you shouldn't stop. I think it, you know, means that you, that you just need to accept that challenge and get better. But I think that as cops, we shy away from that challenge and that's kind of a problem. But anyway, that's just kind of my own, my own little thing. Okay. So what do you think cops do right the most during an investigation or what are you going okay they probably they probably nailed this she's like nothing <laughs> <laughs> they showed up I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's a universal answer for everybody that's hard i think law enforcement is good at what they're comfortable with so if it's something that they've done a bunch of times and they're comfortable with it then that's the stuff that they are good at mm -hmm. um i don't think in a dwi investigation there's one thing that everybody just hits and does great. It's, okay. it, it really just depends. Yeah. And I agree with that. You throw me on like a domestic, I don't know what I'm doing. I do <laughs> know that. making it worse. <laughs> yeah. I do know that two people should be separated. <laughs> now you throw me on a D-dub, you're freaking done, dude. You know what I mean? So yeah, that's a good point. I think we all have our own uh, specialty, if you will. Well, what would you do though, if you had to? investigate a domestic would you just muddle through it or would you probably call somebody yeah. and be like hey i have this Can, yeah do you want to help me out what's the next yeah here? and i think that's what we should do right is understand our shortcomings and kind of stay within our lane uh now i i mean i was a city copper and a deputy so i dealt with domestics quite a bit which i do appreciate that experience but I'll never forget as a city cop i got called out of the city to go to a domestic in the county 
and a trooper showed up and the trooper actually ended up being a really good friend of mine was in my wedding etc but i remember watching the trooper work the domestic and i'm going this dude has no idea. I, yeah, I shouldn't say he was very uncomfortable. Yes. Let's put it that way. And as a city cop who's only had a few years on, I'm like, God, that's weird. This guy's uncomfortable because I didn't know the specialty was more um, in that area traffic anyway. Based. was Yeah, traffic based. Now you go to like rural counties, they work all of it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit different story. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, you know, stay within your lane. And if you don't know the answer, call some call somebody that does. So yeah, I think this, that we could spin this, that the thing that they do well is ask for help and Hopefully. questions, right? So either ask a fellow um, expert in the area or somebody who does it well, or ask their prosecuting attorney, ask questions. Hmm. Novel idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we talked about investigation. Now let's talk about report writing. What do you see most wrong with report writing? I see a lot. <laughs> How much time do you have? Uh, it's just honestly sloppiness. I think is the problem. It's not. There's just so many inconsistencies, and I'm talking just DWI. You know, we mm-hmm. have this the alcohol influence report. You have this fun little chart on the front where you can check all these boxes, and then you have a narrative portion where you have to write things out and. They don't match all the time. A box <laughs> might be checked and nothing about it is in the narrative or there's something in the narrative and the box isn't checked and it just gives defense attorneys the easiest ammunition against you in court yeah. if you don't just take the time to make sure everything's consistent. So it's it's very frustrating because these things are so, so easy mm-hmm. and they should be caught by somebody and they're not. Yeah. I think too, so you um, help us um train new hires yes and i know for a fact i talk about this i know for a fact you talk about this so it's so frustrating when i hear that something didn't match up so and i get it right We're, we're human we make mistakes but it's like god over and over and over i hear that the alcohol influence report was inconsistent with the with the report which was also inconsistent with the uh, body cam or the yes. dash cam and you're like how can we have three different ways to do this so for me as a trainer that's that's very frustrating to to see that i know it's got to be frustrating for you too because you also tell them because you do a full three-hour block on basically courtroom testimony yes i do so which leads me to my next question what is the thing that we as law enforcement do very poorly in a courtroom there's a few things i can tell you the first thing is just not preparing Uh like honestly i have seen so many officers get on the stand and they look like they haven't read that report for a year or a year and a half or whenever they wrote it like that was the last time they looked at this case Um, the other thing is just not watching the video i cannot tell you how many times i have had people get on this either on the stand in the courtroom or in depositions and they have not watched their video. Um, it's just, it floors me because you know, if this traffic stop with the whole investigation, let's say it's, you know, 45 minutes from when you stopped them to get to the station and you write this report, obviously every detail is not going to be in the report. You can't put mm-hmm. everything in there. So why would you not watch that video to refresh your memory before you testify? Um, and it drives me crazy. And I've had people do it even after I've reminded them and said, hey, 
your deposition is scheduled for this time. Can you please make sure you read your report and you watch this video before you get there? And then they show up and they say, oh, I wasn't able to. I was doing something else or I couldn't get the video to play. Like you tell me before you show up, <laughs> I will play the video for you. I will show up an hour early and play it for you. Yeah. But it's it's very, very frustrating because then they give answers that they either say they don't remember or maybe are slightly different than what's on the video because they haven't watched it forever. Yeah. And it causes problems that don't need to be caused. Like it's... Yeah. Yeah, I don't get that either. So I was actually watching the video before we came here for my case tomorrow. I was going to ask you if you've watched your video. Oh, of course. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Give me a little credit here. But I was watching the video and reading the report and uh, making sure everything was, in, uh, everything was consistent. But... Um, yeah, I just don't get that because I've actually been in a courtroom and um, the defense attorney is asking a question. I'll, I'll never forget this. This was where I was first sent out of the academy. And it wasn't a trooper, but it was an officer. And every answer to every question was, I don't know. I mean, this went on for 30 minutes. And I'm going, how in the name of God can you say I don't know to every question? Which was pissing me off. And what pissed me off the most is, so the victim, this wasn't a DWI, but the victim's family is sitting in the courtroom. And I'm going, how embarrassing is this? Yeah. That this guy said, I don't know to well, every and question. From a civilian standpoint, if this guy doesn't know, then who does know, right? Yeah. Like, what are we, why are we all here if, this, if the individual that was directly involved is not remembering? Well, and in a DWI case especially, I mean, oftentimes if you're the arresting officer, you're probably the only witness. We, I mean, we might have the person that tested the blood or the person that did the maintenance on the breath testing instrument. But for the most part, it's like you are the witness. And if you can't remember what happened, it looks like either you're just totally incompetent yeah. or you don't care. And if we are sitting in front of a jury trying to get them to care about EWI, when oftentimes a lot of those people on that jury have driven when they've been impaired before, mm -hmm. especially if it's a case or it's not a crash case, and there's no victims, like, how are they going to care about it if the officer that made the arrest doesn't care? Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's just a really bad look. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that frustrates me. Um, God, I had a freaking thought on that. I was about to just go on a complete rampage, but, um, okay. So speaking of jury trials, um, what is your advice, um, to an officer? So other than like, obviously reading your report and, watching your video. What would you recommend anyway for an officer who's going into a jury trial? Because we know those are different, right? Very different. Yeah. Um, and I've been in several and um, I think a lot of it is reading the jury. That's my opinion. Um, but okay. So what is your advice to an, uh, to an officer? So if I'm coming in as the arresting officer, what would you, if you could tell me something, what would it be? I think when you are addressing a jury, it's a good thing when you are explaining something just to just basics, look at them, right? Look them in the eye, turn towards them if you're explaining something and talk to them. My best witnesses I've ever had have done that where they're explaining some sort of concept or what they did. They literally turn either their chair or just their body towards the jury and it's like they are talking to them. And when you do that, that's when I see the jurors, like they're nodding back, like they are listening and they are engaged and it makes makes you more likable, more believable um, when you are doing that. The things I see that aren't, that when they don't go as well as far as testimony are the officers that are on the stand and looking down or looking away from the jury or not speaking very confidently. So a lot of it is just not even necessarily what you say, but it's just how you portray yourself. Yeah. 
on the stand because um, you do you do need to be confident. Now you don't want to cross the line into arrogance because you can do that really really mm -hmm. easily. But confidence is very important, and just likability in general, the jury has to like you. If they don't like you, they're not going to listen to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So I love it when people turn and actually talk to a jury. Okay. So my perspective, and um, again, please tell me if I'm wrong, because I need to be corrected very quickly. <laughs> but so typically, so like my position that I'm in, I, I don't uh, testify on my cases a lot. I do a lot of like um, rebuttal uh, testimony. So my kind of theory is, and this is just Ryan Hutton talking, is by the time I get up there, they're bored, right? Because they've been in there four, five, six hours, and they're like, Jesus. How long is very boring? Yeah, and a lot of breaks and a lot of times when they are sitting there doing absolutely right, nothing. right. And usually I'm the last one to go because it's the defense expert, and then I come in as a rebuttal witness. So my theory is, and I know you've dealt with a lot of these uh, cases where there is a defense expert. So my theory is I have to be somewhat entertaining, and, and I don't mean like from oh let's be funny or whatever, but maybe, maybe engaging. Now, I'm going with entertaining, okay. baby. Don't you dare correct me okay. on my podcast. And God dang it. No, no. Entertaining. Okay. Because you'll walk in and you'll see these people just glazed over like, okay, is this freaking done? So I like to do props. Um, I have used the, uh, the defense's flip chart to draw like pictures. And usually they're uh, subpar, which is kind of entertaining when you start drawing stick figures and stuff. I didn't um, realize that that might actually go as part of the yeah. official court record. No, no. I usually you sign my name. Some appellate court sure might be, yeah. That might be delivered yeah. to an appellate court someday. Yeah. And mm -hmm. looking at yeah. Your, yeah. You I'm asked to sign my name to it. I get it. Right. I don't. I'm, I mean, I, I understand what's happening here. Um, and then like I've taken um, people out and shown them HGN. So like I hate to say people from the audience, but like from the defense table or the prosecutor out and showed them HGN specifically, like what we're looking for. And I think that sometimes we just don't um, sell, I don't want to say sell the product, but like we're, we're not confident in what we do. And I think they can really sense that. But when we are confident, they go, oh, damn, this is pretty cool. Like they get kind of engaged. And you said the head nod. Engaged so, is a really good word. Entertained. Edit out engaged and put entertained. But when they start nodding along, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's over at this point. Um, so that's my theory. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong, but I will say it's different though, because I would, I mean, you're coming in at that point as an expert witness mm -hmm. who has a whole lot more knowledge to share and you feel very comfortable sharing that knowledge, which I think is probably different than just your average officer coming in to testify. They're not usually expert witnesses and they probably are not as comfortable as someone like you are and you train all the time. So for you, I think that would be you know, awesome. And that, that is a good way to handle it. Yeah, but I, yes, I think all witnesses should have our, our audience, our jury engaged and that's good, but I don't think that's Did you mean entertained? Did you mean entertained? Entertained, okay, whichever. Thanks. <laughs> I don't necessarily think that's realistic. Yeah. Um, I think just working on the confidence issues Yeah. Um, and being comfortable talking, like a lot of people hate talking in public. So yeah. it's a huge, huge difference for these officers who you know, when you guys are on the road, you're in control of what's yeah. going on. The traffic stop, everything that's happening, you have zero control in the courtroom. So mm -hmm. it's a totally different ball game. So you just have to be prepared for it. And I do think, you know, another thing you can do to prepare is actually to practice, like practice answering questions. Yeah. 
uh, because it's different. You might read a list of questions, like, oh, I can answer that. I am totally fine. And then when you're asked those and you start to speak, you're like, I, I can't even get the words out, you yeah. know? So it, it is, I mean, it is public speaking. Like, yes, it's not it a very sensitive topic. Absolutely. So I think that it's not, you're not just up there talking about your favorite color or how to knit a sweater. You are talking about a very serious issue. So if you're not comfortable speaking in public about something that you enjoy, like a football game or something, then you're not going to be comfortable speaking in public about something that is that sensitive in nature. So I think that, and they don't just, that's not something you guys do in the academy, is it? Yeah. Do you do a lot of public speaking? Or... No. I mean, and I, I may be wrong, but we either have an hour or maybe max a four-hour block on public speaking. But what does that do, right? If I'm talking to you about public speaking versus actually public speaking, it's mm -hmm. two different monsters. So, yeah, we, we definitely um, do not do a good job at that. And, you know, Stephanie comes in, we do a moot court. But what, that's, if we have 30 or 40 people, it's only what? Sure, it's very short. We don't yeah. get to do an entire direct or cross-exam yeah. on any of them. But I do think officers could, if they want to put the time into it, practice answering some of the questions they know they'll be asked or practice explaining some things, like just basic things like, why do you do field sobriety tests? Why do you do divided attention tests? Yeah. Because our jury, they don't really understand why you do what you do. So mm -hmm. if all we do is talk about the steps you took and what you did, they're wondering about the why, and they will go back and talk about it and maybe come up with some old, their own theory mm -hmm. about why you did something that's totally wrong. Yeah. and have just a totally different perception so you have to be comfortable explaining to anybody not only what you did but why you did it yeah yeah there's a like there's a quote out there by Deming, which my background is in data so that's that's where this quote's coming from but he he said that if you can't explain what you do as a process then you don't know what you're doing and i think that that's just to the other you know to an individual if you can't teach them or explain what you're doing as a process, then it comes across as you don't know yourself what yep. you're doing. And I think that's that's just human nature is, okay, you didn't give me the answers that I needed to um, during that little spill you did, so I'm gonna fill them in myself. Uh, you have to be able to, to fill in those gaps for them and do it mm -hmm. eloquently. Mm -hmm. hmm. Okay. Okay, got a couple other questions here. Um, so I meant to tell you, some of these came in from online, so like our followers had submitted the these on the line, at the, at the dot com. Mm -hmm. um, so here's another one that came in at the dot com. DRE cases. Yes. Um, and I think the question was, and I, I'm going to go with... Yeah, that, that was, was it. DRE, DRE, DRE cases, go. I'm just a noun. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I mean, I think the question was, how are you prosecute, uh, prosecuting DRE cases? And I'm going to go a step further. Um, what is unique about, have you, you prosecuted DRE cases before, I say? I have. Okay. So, what's like uh, pros, cons, what's unique about a DRE case? And as a prosecutor, like, how do you, okay, you get a DRE case, are you glad there's a DRE involved? Or are you like, eh, it is what it is? Or... No, absolutely. I would love if any, every DWI case, um, drugs other than alcohol, I would love to have a DRE, 100%. Uh, because I do think the general public has seen drunk people, right? They know what drunk people look like. Mm -hmm. If it's other drugs, it is a little bit different and it is a little bit harder to explain. So if we bring somebody in with a little bit more expertise, absolutely that makes that case easier to prove. I will say though, 
I don't think as many DRE cases are tried in Missouri as in a lot of other states. I don't know that those cases are going to trial. Do you know a lot of DREs that are testifying a lot on their cases? It's, it's I don't rare. Hear it happening a lot. Yeah. So why is that? I don't I know. That is. I don't know if there's the. Don't even want to give them ideas, but I don't feel like defense attorneys have really picked up on it as much as they have on alcohol cases in ways that they want to try to fight it and challenge it. Because mm -hmm. there have been some huge challenges to DRE programs overall in other states, and we don't have that in Missouri yet. Yeah. So I do not know why that is, but <laughs> it yeah. doesn't seem to be the focus of a lot of the defense attorneys. And I don't know of a lot of prosecutors that are trying these cases, not because they don't want to, but I think those cases that happen get put out. Yeah. I, I think it's a little bit unique because DREs, I mean, obviously we have a uh, elevated knowledge of impairment, specifically drug impairment. And I think drug impairment is, uh, makes people uncomfortable. So whether it's prosecutors, cops, defense attorneys, I just don't think we know a ton about it. Well, there's not that number either, right? We talked about the, the thing that swayed or that, you know, got the jury going was those, the, you know, PBTs or the, the numbers. There's which makes me surprised we're not challenging Right, yeah. which I would argue yeah. would be more of a reason to challenge it. Well, that's why they're uncomfortable because it's not as cut and dry. It's such a gray area. That's what I'm saying. I think it's very uncomfortable for almost everybody, unless you're a DRE, because you've had that specific training and i would say intense training on drug impairment so that person knows for the most part uh you know with with limited exceptions but knows the most about that drug impairment so everybody involved except for the dre is uncomfortable it's kind of how i perceive it uh, it's, it's very variable too right because there's so many i mean there's just so many drug classes and yeah they, they just well, drugs are awesome because, like, drugs are awesome. That's are. Drugs are awesome. Soundbite. Drugs are awesome. No, but drugs are really cool because you start throwing in these combinations and all these different things that can be happening. And you know, you talked earlier about the puzzle, solving the puzzle. That's what a DRE case is. You you toss in even three of the seven drug categories, man, it's a freaking puzzle. Mm -hmm. And for us to figure it out, it takes a minute. But so then you take a, you know, a prosecutor who we've talked about may not even have limited alcohol DWI experience. Now you're tossing in all these other tests, all these other drugs. I just think it makes people uncomfortable. Um, so you talked about, you know, not many cases go. I, I had one and the, the attorney started to tell me something on a face sheet. I'm like, that's not even true. Give me that face sheet. So we started talking about the face sheet. I'm like, what you're saying isn't true. This, this, and this lines up. And um, I just didn't think he know he knew what to say back. He was like, oh, okay. Like he didn't, you know, he didn't know what questions to ask. Right. Where if it was an alcohol case, they could go, oh, well, what about this, this, sure. and this? They have a whole list of questions yeah. they can ask and they know in alcohol cases. Yeah. yeah. So, so the official question, I want to do my due diligence here, okay. is, uh, so I'm going to read it verbatim. Would love to know how are we prosecuting DRE cases? So I don't know if that means something different than what I said, but... Um, I guess, how are, how are we moving forward with D DRE cases? We as in uh, I would say, so I would say this person, uh, I, I don't want to, I mean, I know they're probably cool with me saying it, but is a definitely a, um, on the side of the prosecution on this one. Okay. <laughs> um, so like as an, as a prosecutor, when you get a DRE case, yeah, how would you move? Like, are you good with that? You're like, oh yeah, boy, we about to do it. What would be? Uh, well, I am step. absolutely. I will give me a DWI case, and if I have evidence to go forward, I'm gonna go forward. Okay. Uh, I do think 
I do know of some prosecutor's offices that if you don't have mm. a test result for some reason, they are much, much less likely to go forward with it. Um, so I do think if you are a DRE and you are in one of those areas, I think it would be a good idea to meet with your prosecutor and talk to them because they don't really probably know what the DRE program is or what it entails or what kind of training you have or how you can make those determinations, you know, without a test. So if you can get them on board and explain that to them, I think that would be something that would be very, very helpful because a lot of prosecutors, you know, we don't legally have to have a number or we don't legally have to have a test, but a lot of people want to have that anyways mm -hmm. um, to go forward with it. So if there's a prosecutor that's hesitant about it, then why not go reach out to them and say, hey, this is what it is and explain it to them and see if they can become more comfortable with it uh, and going forward with those cases where there's issues. And I think something that's important to know is you've been through DRE school. I have. And in fact, you teach in DRE school, usually towards the, uh, oh, what is it? DRE and courtroom testimony. Yes. Is that the case? Or I'm sorry, is that the class? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Something, some, I'm close. So you have Talk like, testifying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you're more comfortable with the DRE program because you've been through it, you teach in it. Um, so what about cases like a DWI drugs case where there's not a DRE? How do you feel about that? And I know it's like case by case basis, right? Yeah, it depends on what the evidence is. Yeah, she's I mean, going total lawyer yeah, on here. Yeah. I'm asking the yeah, questions you're here, damn it. Them open into questions. Well, I'm trying, right? I'm trying. I like the challenging cases, so I might be more likely to take on some of the challenging cases, but I also have more time and more resources than your average prosecutor who also has 200 or 300 or 500 other cases. Mm -hmm. So I am in a very unique position that I can devote time to some of the more challenging cases. So me personally, I I can go forward. If, if I believe there's enough evidence to convict someone beyond a reasonable doubt, I'm going to go forward with that case. I am comfortable with it. But the hard thing is with prosecutors in general, it, the tougher cases it's hard for them to go forward with some of them because they have so many other cases yeah. that they have to do. So it, it really just depends on the investigation that they're given and the explanation they're given for, for the impairment in those cases. And if you can convince the prosecutor, first of all, that you know what you're doing and this is why this, these signs and symptoms mean this conclusion, then you're more likely to have them, you know, go forward with it. But, I do, I am lucky in the sense that I do have more time to focus on individual cases than most prosecutors in the state. So okay. you probably shouldn't base, you know, what you think about prosecutors right. as a whole on what I have the capability and the yeah. resources to do. Yeah. But your specialty is DWI. Yes. So that's, I think that's kind of what's unique about you. So the, my question, just how many overarching and obviously, you know, I'd love a number, but that's not going to happen. But how many cases that are possible um, drug driving cases don't have a DRE? Like, what is, do we know how many of those, like, because I'm vaguely familiar with the structure of, like, you call out, you see if there's one available, and then they respond kind of thing, but how often does that not happen? How many cases is it just a patrol officer trying to navigate a drug driving case? I mean, I don't know if those statistics are kept yeah, anywhere. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I just didn't know if that was like the norm or if that was the exception just based off availability of DRE or. 
So I, I would think that I would get more cases with DREs or be asked more questions about cases with DREs than I do. So from my perspective, it doesn't seem like y'all are called out as mm-hmm. much as you should be, but that's only based on what I get and what I, yeah. what I see. So I would agree with that. And simply based off the numbers, because I think yesterday I ran the numbers and there's like 150 DREs in Missouri. There are 14,000 cops. Mm-hmm. So, you know, doing the math on that, the odds, <clears throat> excuse me, that a DRE is on, number one, uh, and number two is available to come to your arrest, I'm sorry, post-arrest, and do an evaluation. I mean, I would say is, is I don't want to say more likely than not, but I think more officers are making arrests without a DRE than with on a DWI drugs case. Yeah. And that's just sheer numbers. Yeah. You know. I'm just I'm gonna need to see like a like a supply and demand chart if you Yo, work something. There out. is not one. Okay. Nor will I do that. Okay. I refuse to do that. Yeah, I just like I said, from a civilian standpoint, didn't know yeah. And so, I mean, I could compare those numbers, but I forgot the amount of DRE evaluations that we did last year. But I mean, honestly, you could, uh, I could pull those numbers. I know how many DWI uh, drugs cases were done and then compare that to the amount of evals. So I could probably pull that number. I won't mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just because, you know, just because it would be immediate, like it'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. To yeah. Just know. because you want it, I'm not going to do it. Just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you for that. Okay. As a civilian, I, I feel satisfied that there are not Perfect. any in the demand. Perfect. I've done the job of the government then. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So, Stephanie, i got a question for you. Uh, I know we're, like I said, a little over an hour, but i got a few more questions. In Missouri, we now have recreational marijuana. Oh, we do. Hmm. Do you see, I shouldn't say do you see, what challenges do you see ahead for not only law enforcement, but for prosecution of a marijuana impairment case. Because you've been to a green lab. I have been to a green lab, and which I think, was very eye-opening. And I think every law enforcement officer in Missouri should go through a green lab. Absolutely. Okay. I think you all need to see that for sure. Because I think you went to Jeff City. Yes. Is that right? And Okay, so let me ask another question. How did? Uh, what was your experience in the green lab? What did you see that maybe didn't line up with... Uh, things that you were trained on or thought earlier or things that did line up on things that you were trained on? I was surprised by the amount they were able to consume without really seeing any visible signs of impairment. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were quite a few people that, as I was just standing there watching them, I found out later how much they consumed, which was, to me, massive amounts. Yeah. But they didn't seem impaired. They were not obviously impaired to me, mm-hmm. to a mostly untrained person. Um, they seemed okay. And I think that's probably one of the issues is, you know, you might seem okay, but, you know, the problem obviously from our perspective is traffic safety. When you get behind the wheel, you know, how does that actually affect your perception and reaction time and what's going to happen if you can't react to something going on in the roadway and that's where you're causing collisions? And obviously I have a big problem with that, but At the beginning and the first round, I don't know what the technical term for that was, but we'll go with the round. It's good. They didn't seem impaired. And so I was like, okay, they can take in large amounts of cannabis and appear mostly normal. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of what we've learned from it is so first round is usually um, a smaller amount. Mm -hmm. And then second consumption is we basically say, yo, do what you want to do or what you're comfortable with. 
And uh, for me, I, I feel like I had always been trained that if you consume marijuana, you're effed up. And it's been eye-opening to me, and I think it's been eye-opening to the instructors, the DRE instructors that we use, that that's not always the case. Uh, but it's so, it varies so, so much. Yeah. Um, you know, you have someone that consumes half of a joint that can barely stand up. And then you have someone that, that's consumed, I forgot what it was, an ungodly yeah, amount like of... seven joints and like a syringe of RSO. Yeah, it's an ungodly amount of marijuana that's not showing any signs of impairment physically anyway. So that was kind of unique to me is that I think it's a case by case, but not, I think I know it's a case by case basis on, on cannabis consumption. We just, well, we just don't have a number. Well, like and we then, do yeah, not only is it case by case in terms of the, the person, but then we also, the ways to consume are so variable and have such a different impact as well. So that Jeff city lab mm -hmm. was all edibles infused products. Yeah. Edibles. And so it was a different absorption timeline than a lot of the other ones that we had done as well. Yeah. Yeah, so we do them often. It's every time I'm like, good God. Like, I it, I just don't know what, I can't figure it out yet. And that bothers me that I can't figure it out. Okay, so my original question, uh, what kind of uh, challenges do you see for law enforcement coming up? And what kind of challenges do you see in a courtroom coming up on marijuana cases? I mean, I do think we have to overcome the hurdle of not having a number. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit, but people want a number. And I have even had prosecutors and trainings argue with me and say that, the numbers do matter and we should be talking about them um, and that's a lot of people just believe that we should have some sort of per se limit and and that's it and that's what we have to show um, from what i know of the science i don't think that is correct uh, but i'm also not an expert in that area but so not having the number is challenging and then i also think law enforcement officers being able to articulate why whatever they're seeing um, means that that person was unable to safely operate a motor vehicle mm -hmm. you have to be able to do that and in order to do that you have to have experience with people and you have to know what it looks like um, and be able to talk about why you think that person was impaired and it's not as easy to do that with marijuana as it is with alcohol so i do think they just need more experience and that's why i said that green lab i think everyone should be going through green labs multiple times uh, just to get that experience so mm -hmm. they can be able to talk about that stuff on the stand. Yeah, I agree. We do them. And it, uh, I, again, we've done, I don't know what hundred people now, as far as consumers close to it with yeah. the out of state folks. Mm -hmm. And I'm still going, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, and that's, I feel very confident in, in impaired, uh, impaired driving investigation, but marijuana, God, it's a whole nother monster, which yeah. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, because there's just nothing now that we have some of the the data that's that we're collecting alongside the green labs, there's just no indication of a number in the near future that's going to help people feel comfortable with this topic. And yeah. I think that that's, that's what scares most people about it is that, I mean, I'm not saying they will ever, and they're, we're definitely not going to fund whatever research is required to get that number because that's it sounds expensive but um, <laughs> we might i don't know i don't know yeah but i think that's the yeah it's just very variable yeah so from uh from our point of view so when people find out we do the green labs so we know what we're dosing them with and then what and, and that we're collecting chemical tests and like that or that we quant or i shouldn't say we forensic fluids quantifies yeah, yeah. Um, the big question is every time, well, what number is consistent with impairment every time? And it's like, it's even people that shouldn't be asking that question. They know better. Yes. 
The so, only, in the, literally from a data perspective, the only time that we can confidently rule out a data point is when we can tell that it's like residual within their oral cavity. So if they have just smoked yeah. and it's just absolutely, like we can see that spike on the mm -hmm. ground. Like, okay, that's a residual because you see it kind of level out yeah. a little bit. From a data perspective, it's you usually have to like really dig into your outliers. Everything else is like that's a possible absorption rate for that individual. Yeah. And it's just insanity. Well, and I think that also goes to show what a good job we did of telling everybody about 08, 08, 08, legal mm -hmm. limit. You can't do it because now everyone expects that with every single drug. Yeah. I did try, I second shared a, a fatality case where it was meth. Um, and luckily we had a DWI and involuntary manslaughter, but. Uh, they brought an expert witness in that was talking about how, you know, they give fighter pilots amphetamines to wake them up and make them fly better. So mm -hmm. how can you say this person on methamphetamine doesn't drive better? Um, the jury didn't convict on the DWI part of it. They did on the involuntary manslaughter and the, I think it was assault second at the time. But, and they mm -hmm. talked, we talked to them afterwards and they said that was, they wanted a number. And if we couldn't show them a number, they, Wait, and I'm like, yeah, like what level of meth is okay? Yeah. Are they still doing that with fighter planes? Oh, I, I don't. <laughs> There's a difference between methamphetamine and amphetamines, right? And so, well, yeah, Perfectin's meth. But what I'm saying is, you know, you take someone like on Adderall, I mean, that's amphetamines. So, like, to compare amphetamines to methamphetamines is apples to oranges, in my opinion. And it sounds like, I don't know who the, and I hate to give many credit, but whoever the expert witness was, did a very good job of convincing them that amphetamines and methamphetamines was the same thing. Yeah. And it's, it's cl clearly not. Um, so, and I would be curious to know what study they're referencing that they give pilots amphetamines, but. But the jury did, they said afterwards, it was because we couldn't say what level of methamphetamine yeah. was impairing, that maybe it was a low enough dose that it was just enough to wake that defendant up and that wasn't the cause of this crash. Just enough where they were driving perfectly. I, it doesn't make sense to me either, but I mean, we have, I mean, it's awesome that People know about 08 and they're, you know, trying to make sure they're not driving above that limit, but it's also kind of hurt us because, I mean, we know that you can be impaired below an 08, yeah. uh, but also it's so ingrained in everybody's minds that they think every drug has a magic number and that's mm -hmm. impossible. There's no way we'll get that magic number with every single drug out there. Yeah, which sucks for you guys because not only do you not have the number, the world doesn't have the number, right? Like nobody does. So then I think they just expect the state to have one and it just, it doesn't exist. And I'm just not sure that they understand it, that it doesn't exist. Yeah. So I don't know. And you know, maybe that's, maybe that's on us for not educating properly that we have pushed the 08 for so long and not pushed that, Hey, you know, we don't need a number, but I don't know. Hindsight's 2020, 20, I guess. I think it goes back to that specialized term as a general, like general public everyday citizen. I'm not, going to take the time to learn the science behind something that I'm never going to use outside of this particular situation. So if you can't tell me that there is some kind of study or some kind of documented number and or proven process, then I'm probably not going to go figure it out for myself. And mm -hmm. so I think that there is a little bit of a burden on the state of maybe we have kind of uh, shot ourselves in the foot with cannabis because it is still federally illegal but yet it is legal, but not legal enough to, to get any answers on. So we've kind of just backed ourselves into a little, and by ourselves, I mean state, into a, because now we're relying on the public to be able to discern these highly specialized tests that most law enforcement officers don't know themselves. Like, that's just not going to happen. So mm -hmm. I think that there is a burden 
at that point on the state to say if we want to prosecute and or to have more information on this particular type of impairment then we need to be doing something to get that hmm. i'm just staring at you awkwardly to see how long i see what so you're you gonna keep do talking? Yeah, keep yeah. yeah i just like to just keep staring yeah. i feel like do i make you uncomfortable both individuals that are not me here are state employees easy and so therefore no i agree i'm speaking indirectly maybe uh challenging your employers and the entity that should be finding these answers out in my opinion i mean i think both of us probably agree with what you just said it yeah, is absolutely. we have shot ourselves on the foot yeah. yeah and it's a challenge but it's not an insurmountable challenge yeah. like, there are still ways to prosecute these cases and i don't think we shy away from them because they are challenging i think we need to do a better job of learning about it and training people how to you know figure out when someone is impaired by cannabis and be able to explain that to a jury and if you can do that then you're fine that's what we have to show so because i think that just from a green lab perspective is the the funding for that level of training is not available for yet 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 it will happen yeah it's coming we will catch up yeah we're just as a government we like to hang five to ten years behind we like that. To play catch up. yeah <laughs> ahead no catch up absolutely <laughs> absolutely so speaking of training, I kind of want to pitch a class that Stephanie teaches, and that is, I hope I get the title right. I don't even know what the title is. So you can see Testifying it. in a marijuana-impaired driving case. Yeah. Did I get this me? Yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. So Stephanie does teach a class. So would we put it out, I don't know, a month ago? Right after the New Year's, because I just was... Okay, so it's what, the 20, not 25th? Even a yeah. yeah, not even a month. Mm -hmm. So when we put it out, we actually got a... Got a lot of response on mm -hmm. that class. Um, but what was weird is cops are usually anti-online training, mm -hmm. but they wanted like an online like version of that. Yeah, and I think that... Which was weird to me. Well, I think that the... I think our audience for the most part is the individual officer. Yeah. Um, and so I think the individual officer is really interested in that class and that training. Mm -hmm. But from an entity, agency, department standpoint... That's not necessarily mm. their priority. Yeah. Not yet. They're going to wait for a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. Yeah. Is it a problem yet? We can wait on this for another two to three years. So, yes, I would say from the individual officer perspective, which their price point and or feasibility is probably more the online yeah. structure. Which I get. Yeah. Yeah, I get. So, yeah. So, Stephanie does teach the uh, testifying in marijuana impaired driving case. Anything you want to talk about that class? I say I... I personally love talking about courtroom stuff. Like I love being in the courtroom. I love the challenge. I love, you know, helping other prosecutors um, learn how to prosecute these cases. And I love like helping officers as well, like figure out, you know, good things to do when they're on the stand and what kinds of things to avoid. Uh, so this I do a lot as far as impaired driving. Uh, this will be, you know, mostly only focused on marijuana, which is different than anything that I've done before, but again, I, I think it's something that's very, very much needed and it's needed now. It's not mm -hmm. something that's, you know, we need to wait uh, because that's always, I feel like we're so reactive as you know, prosecutors and law enforcement. We wait until the bad thing happens before we really try to figure out a better way to do it mm -hmm. and why not get ahead of it? Um, because do we really want to wait until we have these marijuana fatality um, impaired driving cases and we have someone get on the stand and testify and they 
do not do a good job. And then we call that shit in the bed. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, we get not guilty verdicts. Um, we yeah. don't want to get to that point. So you need to have, you need to be confident and know what juries are looking for before you get to that point. So we aren't losing cases like that. Like those are crash cases are near, near to my heart. So mm-hmm. what I do now, uh, mostly, and there are so many things that we could do better on those cases. And I've had some pretty disappointing investigations overall with impaired driving cases. I would love to get ahead of that a little bit on these marijuana cases. So yeah. we don't get to that point. Yeah. And I think it's obvious that, you know, Stephanie does a good job and cares and obviously knows what she's talking about when it comes to um, not only impaired driving cases, but specifically now, you know, marijuana impaired driving cases and testimony. So I don't know who better to, to take the training from. That's just my opinion. And there's a reason that we're having her on here too, is, um, you know, when I'm sitting on the stand, I would love for it to be Stephanie asking me the questions. Unfortunately, we actually haven't ever done that. We have not had a which case I'm, together yet. I'm shocked. That's um, going to be one of my questions. No, actually, yeah. I had, you were the arresting officer in a case I had, but it did not go to trial. Mm. It was when I was very new mm. at my position now. So okay. I don't even know if I ever talked to you about the case. It, they, they pled guilty. You're dang them. right, boy. You're guilty. <laughs> guilty as charged, boy. But no, we've never been in court together. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, no, seriously. But, um, you know, uh, not to just keep um, tooting Stephanie's horn, but she's... Yeah. She, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, you know, you're very unique. Um, I like that you go out of your way to uh, not only learn things, but to train cops. Because uh, a lot of people like to, you know, complain. Oh, cops don't know this. They don't do this right. They don't do that right. But okay, complaining does nothing. To actually go out and train them to do the right thing, I think, says something about, you know, who you are as a person and then who you are as a professional. So I think that goes a long way. So I would, I would take class from you. I guess I can roll in my... And Stephanie's cost myself. Yeah. So it's going to cost you extra. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, I think uh, definitely be looking for that class. Um, I think it's going to be good for sure. Three hours. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. Legal studies. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right too? Yeah, okay. you're asking a lot of off the yeah. cat questions. You know right? how I, yeah. my computer, but yeah. You know how I do. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Um, that's everything I have on my agenda. The last question I have, other than final thoughts, which is always our last segment, is. Stephanie, is there anything that I haven't covered that you would have liked to have talked about? Yes. Sweet. <laughs> I would love to talk a little bit about crash investigations. Okay. And why law enforcement officers do not care to learn more about them. So, for example, I did a webinar recently called Common Mistakes in DWI Investigations. Hundred like 25 people registered. I have one coming up called Common Mistakes in DWI Crash Investigations. How many people do you think have registered for this? Oh, geez. 15. I'll say 10. Okay, well, more than that. Okay. <laughs> more in the 40s. Yeah. Okay. A huge, huge difference. Yeah. And I have found whenever I try to talk about this thing, people have this weird misconception when for DWI crashes that it's like, it's not my job. I don't do this. We have a reconstructionist. They come in and, and they do this. I don't have to learn about crashes. And I'm like, that is not at all what I'm talking about or what I need from people. Uh, so, so many of my crash cases have been, or the cases I've seen, my personal cases or that I've helped other prosecutors with are so poorly investigated. And I don't want to offend people, but at this point it's like some of them have been really bad. And I don't know why we, we treat these cases 
as DWI cases where someone happened to die instead of these are homicide cases where we have a drunk driver as a defendant, which is how it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a homicide case, um, and so there's a dead body, you know, in my basement here, you would have crime scene techs come in, you would have investigators come in, you would have a lead investigator, they would be telling other people what to do. There would be a cohesive investigation. For the most part, we do not do that in DWI fatalities. And I don't know why. Like we, these are homicide victims that aren't sometimes getting the justice they deserve because of how we handle them. Uh, so I would love for more people to, you know, really think about that and think about how we can change that. Uh, because it's not just, hey, you're the arresting officer, you do the DWI investigation, the reconstructionist comes in and they do their part, and then nothing else happens. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot more that comes into it. Um, so I would love for more people to want to be interested in that um, and to really learn about what they can do, even if it is a case where, let's say it's an agency that maybe they do call a different agency to come in and help. There are still a lot of things you can do if you are there first on scene to help out the case mm-hmm. um, that, that are not being done. So it's just like everyone is so hands-off. Not my job, not my job, not my yeah. job. It's this person and this person. And then, and the worst thing that people do on scene is if they're all, I don't know how many people come to these fatality crash scenes. It's a lot. Yeah. And they're telling all these people standing around, did you see, did you see this crash happen? No, okay, leave. Which is awful because you don't have to see it happen to be a witness in a case. And we are sending possible witnesses in the case off without yeah. getting their information. So yeah. if you're not going to do anything else and you're just standing there, Take down that person's name before you tell them to leave yeah. and let someone who actually knows the facts of the case maybe contact them later and see if there is information they can give us that might be helpful. Yeah. So. Yeah. Just because they didn't see it doesn't mean the driver wrapped his freaking car or hit someone else head on, then gets out post-crash and says, God dang, I'm f***ed up. Well, yeah. I mean, they'll try to get rid of, you know, beer cans or alcohol right. bottles. They might see who just exited the driver's seat. You know, they might not see it originally. They might hear that defendant, the statements they make. They yeah. might see them stumbling around. They might smell alcohol in them. Yeah, they ask them not to call the cops, which I feel yes. like is a very common one. There are so many things that you don't have to actually see this crash happen in order to be a witness. But these witnesses are sent away all the time. And then we can't find them again. Or we find them two and a half years later when it's going to trial. And yeah. Their memory is just not that good. So. Oh, wow. I agree with that. That's a good one. Yeah. Why do you think that happens? Uh, so I think it's really what Stephanie said is we unfortunately like to pass the buck when we're not comfortable with that situation. And I mean, kind of like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, well, we're not comfortable rather than, you know, rising to the challenge and going to trainings. Just, you know, she said the DWI one had 125 and then the crash one has 40. I think that's very obvious that we're not accepting that challenge of the crash ones. Um, and, and I think that's just unfortunate because those are the ones where you have a victim and someone who is either seriously injured or dead. And that class should probably have 500 compared to the 125. Uh, because when we start dealing with dead bodies, that's a, that's a big deal. That's a, a big problem. Big um, and it, it kind of, you know, bothers me that we're not doing our due diligence when it comes to that, because we have victims, we have, uh, somebody dead, we have friends and family that will be, uh, forever affected by this traumatic event. And I just think we have to go out of our way to do things right. And, 
you know, have, having talked with Stephanie uh, about some of these cases that a lot of times they're just very disappointing as to what happened. And it, you know, it bothers me. You know, we talked about this. So, it bothers me too. Yeah. Um, I can't, didn't, these are things I don't know as a civilian, but do you think this, and this might be a assumption, but do you think that the uh, location and the situation of the homicide impact the level of investigation? So you had mentioned like there's a dead body here in your basement, you'd have crime scene tape, and ultimately this scene would be fairly secure. Um, in the event of a of a uh, homicide via DWI crash roadside, do you think that the drive to get traffic moving again sometimes overrides the investigation priority in that situation? It depends. Yeah, it definitely depends on where it happens. I mean, if it's on I seventy, they're not going to close that down for days to. Mm-hmm. get the reconstructionists in but there are some areas where i think we could do better at keeping it closed down until the reconstructionist gets in and does what they're supposed to do i had a case up in maryville maryville pd they did a phenomenal job on a fatality case there was a rhino maryville's a smaller town but there was a road that they closed down i think it was, it was either a day and a half or two and a half days where they just closed it down because the reconstructionists couldn't get out there Till then, they didn't want anyone else driving over it, and I mean, it is a crime scene, so mm-hmm. that was awesome that they did that, and it probably did really help with the evidence in that case. They're like, hey, you know, people are gonna have to go around. Like we had someone die here, so mm-hmm. yeah, traffic's gonna be rerouted, and I think it was awesome that they did that. You don't. That's the first time we've ever seen a road closed for for that long for an investigation, but I think that plays into it some as far as just getting the road open mm-hmm. again, but. The rest of it, I just don't know why we don't, if we have a fatality crash and we suspect impairment or there's any allegations or inkling of impairment, first of all, why don't we bring in a DWI person? Right. You know, like every agency that I've ever worked with has, whether it's a formal DWI unit or the, the guy. there's the DWI person or people in that agency, you know who they are. It's very obvious. Why are we not calling that person or people in when it's a fatality? Mm-hmm. There is really there's no reason that we have either brand new people that haven't done that much investigate these fatality cases on their own or the person that maybe has been around a lot for a long time that doesn't do that many dwis those are not the people that should be handling these investigations yeah that's just not fair to the victims and their families right it really isn't yeah you know i think what you would find is the dwi guys are man call me yes and i will go like they we thrive on that, right? This is the only thing that I'm good at. I accept that. Right? I'm a one-trick pony. Yeah. So call me to these cases that you're not comfortable with. And, you know, kind of going off what Smee was saying, you know, does location factor in? I think yes, but at the same time, I don't think location should factor into the initial responding officer's ability to investigate a crash or gather evidence. Like we start, you know, again, talking uh, about shutting down I-70 for a day and a half like Maryville did. That's probably not feasible. But, you know, the initial responding officer, we can do our due diligence and collect evidence and take pictures and interview people. So, you know, now you're only talking hours. And I think hours is completely acceptable, whether it's I-70 or, you know, County Road Butthole or whatever it is. Is that an actual... Could you Google that? Is there a County Road Butthole? Probably not. Would you Google that for me? But you you did say, though, the initial responding officer, there also has to be someone that's dealing with the 
the drunk person, right? So it, that's another thing we do is we usually have one person handle everything, which mm-hmm. is almost physically impossible mm-hmm. to take down everybody's name at the scene, get statements from every witness, deal with the drunk, and then, you know, start, you know, collecting what evidence you can't yeah. prove in the red flag. You can't do that by yourself. Yeah. You know, and I would say, unless you're very comfortable, uh, yeah, that's, that's either really difficult at best or impossible. Um, you know, for me, uh, you know, responding is my number one thing is to gather evidence of the impaired driver because I know that that's leaving at some point, yes. right? It's going to be eliminated. So that's priority number. Well, priority number one is health and safety, right? Is somebody injured? Do they need medical attention, et cetera? Number two is gathering evidence. And then number three is my crash. I mean, for me, my crash is going to be there. I know where the cars are at. I got skid marks. I've got yaw marks. I've got all these things. But sometimes, I mean, I, I, and again, you and I have talked about this, not get too specific, but to like, they start working the crash. Well, there's a drunk dude over here. Why are we not talking to this dude? They haven't contacted they, they haven't even, 45 minutes since like, the crash happened. What the hell are you doing? Right? This guy's... Anyway, but <laughs> let's gather that evidence that's leaving and then get the other evidence next. Is there a county road butthole SME or not? So there's not a county road butthole, but there is a county road crested butt. Crested, crested butt? Mm-hmm. I'll take that. All right. If it has the word butt in it, that's acceptable. I figured you would. That's why I let you know okay. about crested. Is that here? No, it seems to be in Colorado. Mm, that's a total Colorado thing I to have. like a geological formation. I think it's just two butt cheeks. Anyway. So I agree with you. I'm glad you brought that up. And um, like I said, I know you and I have talked about it. I get kind of worked up about that because I, uh, well, I shouldn't say. But because we can do better. That's why. We can. And there's no reason we shouldn't do better than that, especially when we start talking about victims. But, okay. Anything else? Well, that would... is like a, you know, oh, a, deep, she... a steep-sided hill with a flat top. Wow. So she's, hey, this is an educational podcast. You're talking about butts? Okay, I'm talking about butts in the geological sense. Sure. It's like a steep-sided hill with a flat top. I think you should try to work that in the next report you're in. <laughs> oh, I can do that. I did a training today where I said the word elucidate, which I'm excited. Mm-hmm. I like to work things in like that. Okay. Maybe I'm the only one that didn't know what elucidate meant for the longest time, but anyway. Okay. Anything else no. that we didn't cover? No, that was my that's my big one. Okay. As the only one with the printed agenda, did you have anything? Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> should should we say so I sent Stephanie an agenda like via text message that was had four things on it. I made up. <laughs> I was at working out. I was just trying to get her and then we show up what and she's got a full printed page with one, two, three, four, five, six, yeah, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. I like 15, to be prepared. 16, I like 18, a good bullet point. See, I tell everyone else they need to be prepared for things. Look at me. I'm prepared. <laughs> there are twenty-one bullet points on this piece of paper. <laughs> Meanwhile, I've got this scrap that I can barely even read that I wrote when I first got here. Post post shot taking, of course. Mm-hmm. So okay. Um Final segment, final thoughts. So what I say we're going to do is we'll go with the SME. And then usually we go with ladies first, but I feel like I like to give the guests the last word. Okay. So we'll go SME, myself, Stephanie, then we'll close this bad boy out. Okay. SME, final thoughts, go. My final thoughts were good. My only notes were some of the data points that I wish you would collect for me that I'm not going to let you lift down. Not going to do it. Not um, doing it. But that's about it. I think it was a good conversation. I think... You have a Stephanie has a way of making legal things 
interesting. So that's good because usually I get kind of tired. We talk a lot about law stuff, but it was a good conversation. Are you calling Denise boring? No, I just I she, think did, she is. She, Denise, she's calling you boring, I'm just FYI. I don't follow all the way. And as the jury, I think it's important that I follow. Ooh. I think wow. I agree. It's important so, that you follow. So you need to be entertained, is what you're I saying. I need to be engaged, engaged. in the conversation. Okay, all right. Entertained, I'll note that. And I think that's an awesome specialty that she brings to the table. And I learned a lot. I'm just going to stare at you to see if you can I figured this what I was doing. So okay. that's why I stopped talking immediately. Okay. Gotcha. I figured that was your plan. Yep. Okay. So my final thoughts, number one, I appreciate you being on here. Um, number two, I really respect uh, your knowledge and um, you know, what you do. Cause you, you know, not only help the, uh, my organization and then me train people, you help uh, people all across the state. And I honestly think that you'll probably move on to uh, the national multi-state level too, because you just have so much knowledge. And I think people are missing out by not listening to what you have to say uh, and the uh, recommendations and stuff that you give, because I think you're extremely knowledgeable and that's rare. And to go a step further, I think you care, which is a big thing. Um, so I really do appreciate, appreciate that. I think you're uh, awesome. I love when you come in and talk to our new hires and I know you and I have done, I don't want to say trainings together because that's not true, but have been at trainings and presented at the same trainings. And I love uh, listening to guys and gals talk about what you say. And so, oh, I never thought about that or this. So they always get something out of uh, the training that you put on. So I think that's something because, you know, cops were known to not listen. And that so happens, that happens on occasion. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, you're doing a great job. I, uh, I really appreciate you being on here and I guess I will give you, Oh, I always ask this question. Number one, did you enjoy it? Yes, I did. And number two, I'll get you on record. Are you going to do it again? Yes, absolutely. Hell yeah, boy. I like that. Yeah. Okay. All right, Stephanie. Final All right, thoughts. So my final thought, I think I, Maybe you guys don't have the perception, but I feel like I was a little negative about some things that officers do. No. And I don't want to leave with that, like, this is all the stuff you do wrong. Like, terrible, <laughs> you suck. So I do want to say, I do think every time you arrest somebody for DWI, you are taking someone off the streets that potentially could have killed somebody. And that is a really, really, really big deal. So even if you get frustrated with the system or um, your prosecutor or your judges, if you feel like things aren't being done, keep arresting those people anyways because you literally never know when something really really bad could have happened had you not stopped that person or had you given up on dwis because you get frustrated so even though i know it can be frustrating keep doing it um, because it really does make a difference and i appreciate you know every officer that does make those stops and gets those people off the roadways well said yeah i don't think she's being negative no, I didn't think so either. I pulled a whole sheet. <laughs> it's not bullet points. It's just a freaking negative sign. No, no, I get it. I get it. And, but, but, you know, I'm also, uh, I get it. We have stuff up and a lot of that is, you know, we need to take ownership of that. So I appreciate that. But all right. I appreciate you guys listening and taking the time out of your, I can only assume is super busy shift to listen to clearly the fastest growing podcast. I would say in Southwest Missouri, but we're in central Missouri right now. For legal reasons, Southwest Missouri. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you guys' time. So whether you're on days or nights, uh, have a good shift. And no matter what, remember to chase cars, not promotions, and peace!